Uh, well, my name is Ken, and I wasn't supposed to be speaking today. I thought I was going to have a week off, uh, but my friend Jake um, double booked, and so he's actually going to come speak at the end of May on Memorial Day weekend, and it actually works out kind of good because we're in the middle of a series, and so we get to just power it out uh, today, and then we'll finish it next week. And the series is called Mother Kirk, uh, and Kirk is the Scottish word for church, and so uh, C.S. Lewis, who's I'm a big fan of Lewis, uh, used Mother Kirk as a figure of the church in his allegory, The Pilgrim's Regress, which is kind of a autobiographical story, and so that's kind of where I got the title from. Plus, I think it's kind of providential that we end the series Mother Kirk next Sunday on Mother's Day, and I'm thinking that maybe I'll just get some points for that because it uh, kind of goes together. All right, well, we'll dive right in. Uh, last week, if you remember, let's just recap. Um, the, big, the big concept we were trying to get across is simply this, that the body of Christ uh, is an invisible body. It's everybody that is a believer um, in the world is a part of the body of Christ. We are an extension of his work in this world. But, so, so there's this invisible side of it. But there's also a visible side of the body of Christ. And so a church, a local congregation, local community, that particular church, any church, is also the body of Christ. So the church is both invisible and visible. And so we talked about 1 Corinthians 12, 27, which uh, reads, Now you, you referring back to the Corinthian church, now you are the body of Christ, and each of you is a part in it. And so it's almost as if I could look at you and say, Now you are Antioch, you are the body of Christ. And each one of you here today is a part in that body. And there's a lot of things that's going to come from that imagery Um, you being who God called you to be is going to help us be a better body. Uh, you not being who God called you to be is going to help, uh, is going to, in some sense going to drag us down, um, because it's like a canoe. If you're in a canoe and you're not rowing, then you're slowing it down, right? And so I read a quote from, uh, Dr. Robert Sosi, who was one of my seminary professors, and he simply said this, as for membership in an invisible church without fellowship, with any local assembly, this concept is never contemplated in the New Testament. The universal church was the universal fellowship of believers who met visibly in local assemblies. And so we really tried to just argue and say this idea that I'm just going to be kind of a free agent floating Christian isn't something that the New Testament accounts for. And it would be akin to saying this, I don't need a family because I'm a member of humanity. Would, would be like saying, I don't need a local church because I'm a part of this invisible body of Christ. And so we're going to continue on and remember the format of this series uh, is taking questions that people sent me about the church and just interacting with those questions and responding to them. So the first one we're going to deal with today is this. Why, uh, that's not the first one. I'm sorry. Uh, who is the focus of church? And the way the question came to me was this way. Is the point of church to reach people who don't go to church, or is the point of church to support those who already go to church? So who is the focus of church? Uh, And we have to kind of get behind the scenes a little bit and talk about philosophy of ministry. What is driving what churches do? Because most things that happen have a, 
a rationale behind them. And so for the most part, churches know who they're talking to, who the audience is, and why they're talking to them in a certain way. And there's two views on this. And the first one is this, the traditional view. It's to educate and equip believers. So the point of church is for Christians to come together, to be together in one place. And while we're together, we're going to educate you, we're going to teach the scriptures, and we're going to equip you to go out and have, have a mission in the world or um, to, to do what God kind of is calling you to do. So it's to educate and equip. And then the second view, which has kind of come on the scene since the late 70s, this lingo has is, is come about. Uh, the first church really was Willow Creek Community Church in uh, Chicago, and it kind of birthed this movement, and it's called the seeker-sensitive movement. And their view was this, it's to reach church services, ought to be to reach and save non-believers. The idea being that the the day that you're going to get the most amount of people in church is a Sunday morning. And so those of you that already know God, uh, you're lucky, um, and you know what? The lost sheep, Jesus said, you know, the 99 are important, but the one sheep that you go after and chase down, that lost sheep, that God rejoices over that more than the 99, which is a mind-blowing passage. And so the seeker-sensitive movement comes along and says, you know what? Sunday mornings, we're going to go after those that don't know Christ yet, because that's when we can get them there. And the believers can uh, find a midweek service or a Bible study, and that's when they're going to get fed. Okay, And so these are kind of the two different views that emerged as to what um, a church service should be about. And what really kind of drove this in a lot of ways was just what was happening culturally in America. And culturally in America, we were shifting in the late 70s um, or throughout the 70s from a Christian nation to a non-Christian nation that Christendom was kind of no longer the thing or the mainstay in America, that this was a secular culture. Does that make sense? You follow me? Okay. And so what starts to happen when you get a gap between culture and the church is that the church doesn't realize that it's no longer speaking the language of culture. And so the seeker-sensitive movement really brought back the mindset that says, wait a second, What's going on when people can't even understand what you're saying in church? And they took this verse, and I think they took it rightly, but uh, I'll just read it to you out of Corinthians. It says this, um, So if the whole church comes together and everybody speaks in tongues, and some who do not understand or some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your minds? Okay, Paul's... uh, point here is that's not a good thing if somebody comes in and they're 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 seeking or they're visiting or they're they're kind of uh, an outsider and they walk in and it's like what in the world is that i can't even grasp it it doesn't make any sense to me that that's not a good thing and we've got our church lingo and and you know and angels prostrate fall if you don't know kind of the religious side of that word, it's going to leave you really grasping for what it is we're singing. Okay? And we do a lot of strange things and have a lot of strange decorations and a lot of all sorts of things. And the seeker sensitive movement was saying it shouldn't be like that. People shouldn't come in and go, wow, what in the heck's going on? And if you want to know what that feels like, I took a semester 
in grad school and went around and visited all different kinds of religious gatherings. I mean, all the way across the board, Hare Krishna, and uh, I went to a mosque, and I went to a Sikh temple, and I went to all sorts of different places, and you begin to realize real quickly that there's a difference between being pulled in and included and spoken to, or being excluded by language, body language, um, even ceremonies that you're, you're clueless on, and what that feels like to just be kind of lost and excluded. And so if you ever wanted to do that, you could even do that in Bend and begin to realize what does it feel like to come in as an outsider again. So the cultural gap was there, and the church kind of started just doing what it was always doing, and they weren't speaking the language of culture. And so the seeker-sensitive movement came along and said, we ought to be able to speak normally in church and share the message of Christ. So here's a UK version of a popular commercial series that kind of points out what's going on here. And I'm a PC. We've got a little network going here, and it was very easy to set up, surprisingly. Exactly. We speak each other's language. Yes, we share an internet connection. There are all sorts of things we can do together. Hang on, who's this? Oh, this is that new printer from Japan. Just came out. Why is she connected to you? She probably doesn't realise you're a Mac. It's no use! He's a Mac! PC, we can communicate. Everything just kind of works with a Mac. Listen, your efforts are being wasted. Watashiwa omochi des. Ekiwa doku deska. Hmm? You sure she's Japanese? Yeah. So the, the basic idea here is that the secret sensitive movement was trying to say, we don't realize it, but we're a PC, uh, and we're not connecting with culture. Now, here's the thing. I think in some sense, both of these things, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes says the wise man avoids all extremes. Both of these things can be taken to an extreme that's not good. The, the we're going to only reach believers thing, the extreme there is that there's so many stumbling blocks before you ever even share the message of Christ, the people never even hear what it is you're talking about. They walk in the front door, and the sights, the sounds, the smells, the decorations, I mean, all these things kind of like trip people up, and they're lost and not even with you before you even open your mouth and you talk about Jesus. Does that make sense? And Paul explicitly said in the New Testament, and his life bored out, that you're all things to all people. You, you go and you, you talk to people within their normal language. When he was on Mars Hill uh, with the Athenians, he's talking philosophy with them. And when he was with the Bereans, he was talking scripture with them. And so you talk to people where they're at, and the whole point is you want to give them the message. And the message itself is a stumbling block. And what the seeker-sensitive movement was saying, that should be, ought to be the only stumbling block. These other things are kind of silly if we put them in there. So you can go off the, the deep end on the one extreme. The seeker-sensitive movement can also take you off the deep, deep end if you go to the extreme on that. And what begins to happen there is in the name of relevance, you begin to soft-pedal the message of the cross. And the message of the cross is this, that Jesus had to die for our sin. Which means what? That we're sinners, okay? And that's not very politically correct. It's not fun. Um, it's messy. And the message of the cross 
it says in the New Testament, is offensive and it's a stumbling block. It's not pretty and neat and tidy and smells good. It's messy. And that alone um, ought to be a stumbling block. But the, if you go to the extreme of trying to connect so much and you begin to realize people are stumbling over the cross, sometimes you begin to soft pedal the message of Christ. And you make the message simply about self-help or basic living principles, and that's kind of where it ends. And you never really tell people about the gospel or the good news that we who are far from God because of our sin can be brought near because of Christ. Does that make sense? And so we don't want to go off the deep end on the seeker-sensitive side either where all we're doing is entertaining people. A good joke is, I mean, I like a good joke, and it's going to make me have a good time at church, but it won't bring me back next week. There's just too many other things to do, especially in the fall with football and, and uh, sleep. Um, and so a good joke is nice, but we're trying to do something more than just entertain. And so hopefully navigating between these two extremes is where we need to be at. One quick quote that talks about the dangers of just entertaining. And Charles Spurgeon, uh, who lived in the late 1800s, said this, The mission of amusement produces no converts. The need of the hour for today's ministry is believing scholarship joined with earnest spirituality. The one springing from the other as fruit from the root. The need is biblical doctrine so understood and felt that it sets men on fire. And what I've learned is my Christian friends are dying for something uh, about Christianity that they can just get their mind around and get excited about and make them feel like, wow, there's something here that's true. And my non-Christian friends are saying, you know what? Um, I don't need to go to church unless it's true. So you better tell me something that I don't already know. You better, you better educate me. You better make me think. And so I think both sides, the Christian and the non-Christian right now, are dying for some credible voice out there in culture that's going to tell them what they should, uh, something true that they can actually believe and get excited about. Let's move on. Next question is this. When we think of relief and love, why do we think of movie stars rather than church? So why is the church not known for social justice? Here's how this question came to me. When we think of relief and love in the world, why do we first think of Oprah and Brad Pitt and not the church? And uh, I'd simply begin by, there's a lot of things I could do to to say this question's just wrong, okay? A lot of charity was birthed through the Middle Ages into the modern periods uh, by orphanages and, and monasteries and different kinds of things that were started, started by very religious people. And so there's even Mother Teresa's of today, and there's so many people out there. So I could try and say, no, 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 the church is doing a lot, but I'm just going to avoid that side of the question and grant the question and say, you know what, in a lot of ways it's right. So why is that? Why does the church not get the reputation for being at the forefront of loving people and meeting needs? And I'll simply say this, um, it's more comfortable saying what Jesus said than doing what Jesus did. 
Okay, It's easier to go preach the message of Jesus Christ and, you know what, you're in a bad fix and you're lost and you're going to hell. And the big thing here is you need to come on my side so that you lose, I win, uh, and then we'll talk about what comes next after that. And it's easy for us to get caught up in kind of preaching this, this very shaded version of a message and be so intent on that and focused on that that we don't see the needs right in front of us. Okay? So it's easier to say sometimes what Jesus said, and Jesus didn't say that, by the way, uh, than do what Jesus did. And here's another way of saying it. It's easier to label than to love. So why was the church so late on the AIDS pandemic in Africa? Because we were so in love with the idea that AIDS was like God's judgment on gay people and the sexually immoral. That we couldn't get our minds around the fact that there's single moms and orphans and widows and people without good medical conditions dying. I mean, I don't, I don't remember the statistics. What was it? An or, there's an orphan every 30 seconds because of AIDS. We couldn't get our minds around that because we were too busy labeling that we couldn't love. There's another way to say it is it's hard to touch the leper when you've got a, um, a pistol in both hands. And so I think the church has missed the boat in a lot of ways on social justice because we're too busy telling people they're sinners. Um, and we didn't show them we cared first and Jesus didn't do that. Jesus showed people he cared, and that was a part of the message, because people matter to God, and if people matter to God so much that he would send Jesus to save them, so much that this uh, message of the cross would be there, well then obviously their basic needs matter too, and their life matters too, and their pain and suffering matters too. And if we can't show that we resonate with that and care about that, then we can't really show people that they matter to God. And so they go together. And um, here's the other thing um, that's crazy is we just, uh, we'll just let the Mac video kind of bring it up. So we got another one here. Mac, I have a PC. Ready to get started? Well, not quite. Got a lot to do. What's your big plan? I might uh, make a home movie or maybe create a website, try out my built-in camera. I can do it all right out of the box. So what about you? Well, first got to download those new drivers, and i got to erase the trial software that came on my hard drive. Sweet. And I've got a lot of manuals to read. You know, it sounds like you have a lot of stuff to do before you do any stuff, so I'm just going to get started because I'm kind of excited. Let me know when you're ready. <sighs> Actually, the rest of me is in some other box. Why is the church not known for social justice and people like Oprah and Brad Pitt are? Um, because they don't have a lot of hoops to jump through. Well, they got a lot of money and they got a lot of press, but they see a need and you know what? They just, they just meet it. Okay? Unfortunately, the church creates this like bureaucratic red tape, internal crazy systems and committees and everything else. And we've got to be so intent on, now if we do that, is the church's name going to be associated with it? Because we've got to get credit, right? Because somehow we're not going to love unless it grows our Sunday morning service. Because we put strings on stuff, unfortunately. And we got so much junk going on that we don't really look at the need, feel it in our heart, and just go for it. And I think sometimes it's, it must be nice just being outside the church, and it's like you see a need, it's like, oh, wow. And you hit your buddy on the, on the arm, and you say, well, let's go do something about this. 
And the church is still like doing like uh, focus groups and study group, trying to figure out what they can do. And, and it, I think it's crazy. I, I know two churches, um, a church I used to be a part of that just went through a big major issue at an elder leader level debating whether or not to allow dancing at wedding rehearsals that use their church facility. And kids in Africa are dying of AIDS. I mean, you know, I just watched my kids because my wife was out out of town for 24 hours and and it about put me under. Uh, And so what I do, I've told you this before, what I do to try and survive when I've got my kids is I try and get them really excited by saying, look, we're going to break all the rules and and we're going to get into lots of trouble. And of course, getting into trouble and breaking the rules means going to like McDonald's instead of Wendy's. But they don't know the difference, you know. Um, and sometimes I think, you know, maybe we just need to say to the church or a couple churches, you know what, maybe to just get things going or grease it a little bit, maybe you just need to break a couple rules. Maybe it's okay to allow dancing at somebody's wedding, you know. There's another church I was a part of that stopped supporting a local homeless ministry because the, the new executive person... Uh, was pro-gay. And so, you know, they couldn't be associated with that. So they stopped helping the homeless ministry. Now, let me put it into how I see that. It'd be like walking up to a homeless guy and saying, okay, hey, dude, I'll give you this food, but only if this person doesn't give you a plate. If this guy gives you a plate, forget it, deals off. I mean, I mean we really got to wake up and say, come on already. Okay, and it's there's a problem here and we need to be about love and not get like hung up at looking at our toes, you know, and and doing stupid stuff. So I I just that's really how my heart is. I mean, dancing, you know, I mean, boy, (laughs) Uh, what is the point of church membership? What is the point of church membership? We'll just keep moving along here. Uh, what is the point of church membership? I don't think it's that big of a deal. Okay, Some churches have church membership. If you go to a church that has church membership, play along. Be a team player. Don't be the rebel because churches don't need more rebels. And become a member and just do their thing. Okay, Antioch's not going to have membership because I don't think it's that big of a deal. Uh, there's a verse, and I think membership in a church doesn't come from a piece of paper. It's this. Um, Ephesians, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. We're members in the body of Christ in virtue of the gospel and by being Christians. And the only initiation rite I've ever seen is baptism. You're baptized in. and, And so going through some kind of a thing where you sign a paper I mean, when I got married, you know, I didn't get a, a letter of transfer of membership, you know, from my father-in-law. You know, I hereby, you know, she was a member in good standing of our family, and, and here you go. I mean, a handshake was good enough, you know. And there's some reasons why churches have membership and, you know, voting purposes and this and that. Uh, keeping, if you like to keep track of numbers, membership's a good thing, or denominations that like to keep track of numbers, it's a good thing. I suppose, but here's my problem with membership, and it's, it's simply this. Uh, I think it can often be used to force commitment 
because pastors and denominations know that when you get people to sign on the dotted line, they're going to be more committed to you. It, it forces a moment of crisis. Does that make sense? And when you sign, you're just in your mind going, well, that's, I'm married to that. I can't really leave that easily. And so churches like that. Why? Because it helps put boundaries up to keep people in so that they can kind of like stay together and keep growing and do that thing. And I think sometimes church membership is just one more tool of church growth. And so the analogy I've got is simply this. It's, uh, it's like a playground. And a playground, if you put up walls and fences, it keeps people in, doesn't it? But I think there's another way to keep people in, and, and this is where my heart's at, and that's simply this. Uh, if you build a killer playground in the middle of that park, you don't have to worry about the edges of the park. You don't need a fence. I mean, if there's like swings, and they're like those bright blue colors, you know, and slides, and the little climbing wall that they got at all these playgrounds now, and if all that's right in the middle, guess where the kids are going to be? They're going to be right in the middle. And you don't need to put a fence up. They're not going to go anywhere. Where else would they go? And to me, that's vision. Okay? A church needs to have vision. It needs to see itself as, like, we're not just sitting around being an institution. And we're not just going to dole out membership so it's like I've got my Costco card. I have my rights and privileges. I'm a member. You know, it's like we don't have time for that. We're a movement. We're trying to run fast and do something. And we're excited about changing the world. And that vision ought to be what keeps people in the center. And if we ever lose vision, then people ought to go somewhere else where they can move and where they can change the world rather than stay here if we're dying. And I don't want to put up artificial barriers to keep people in. The vision ought to be what keeps them here. Does that make sense? And I think when we spend so much time on the walls and and keeping people corralled, we really lose sight of the purpose of the body of Christ. And the purpose of the body of Christ is, is just that. It is Christ's body. And his body is to do his purposes. His body is to fulfill his mission. Does that make sense? So it kind of reminds me of this, uh, this part of the Civil War, which is kind of fascinating. And the whole Civil War is fascinating. Uh, but this, this is kind of a cool thing. This is General George McClellan. And McClellan, early on in the war, came to D.C., took over the Army of the Potomac, and the Army of the Potomac was uh, the North's biggest army right there, kind of stationed out of um, Washington, D.C. And he was a whiz at, at um, drilling people and pulling it together and giving it some semblance of order and structure. He was a whiz that way. Uh, his name was like Little Napoleon, uh, and he had, you know, according to scholars, because I never met the guy, According to scholars, he thought very highly of himself, and so he was kind of the little Napoleon, thought he was kind of God's gift. But he pulled this ragtag army together, and they would drill, and they would go through disciplinary, like discipline things to, to put, you know, figure out how to do what it is you're supposed to do, all that kind of stuff. But here's the thing. When he'd go into battle, he was always scared. He always thought that the South had more people than they actually did. He would never commit his full resources because he never wanted to jeopardize himself. And whenever something would happen, he'd immediately like fall back and regroup. Okay? And pretty soon he just wouldn't do anything other than just drill and like psych himself out that he was on the defense rather than on the offense. Okay? To such a degree, like caring about, and he was always saying, I need more numbers, I need more numbers. And he's got an army half, like twice the size of Lee's. 
I need more numbers and I need more of this. And he's just growing this thing, growing this thing, growing this thing. And it's pretty. I mean, it's really like just pretty, this army he's got. But he wasn't doing anything with it. And Abe Lincoln got so frustrated with McClellan. Eventually he ends up replacing him. But he got so frustrated with McClellan that he one time fired off a telegram and said this. He said, uh, if you're not going to use the army, do you, mind if, do you mind if I borrow it for a while? If you're not going to use the army, do you mind if I borrow it for a while? Why? Because the purpose of the army is what? To go out, to find Lee, to crush Lee, and put an end to this war. It's to go and fight. That's the purpose. And if you're not going to fulfill the purpose, do you mind if I just step in and, and do it for you? Kind of. And I think God looks at some of the churches sometimes and says, man, if you're not going to use that church, do you mind if I borrow it for a while? You've got so many gifts in that church and talents and amazing people. And just think what could happen if you actually stopped caring about the walls and the boundaries and size and prettiness. And you actually got out there and hit the trail and got dirty and dusty and started doing something and moving. And so that's why we were driven to just jump on uh, missions right away. We've got a team going to Uganda in a month. We're a little over six months old. Why? Because why not? And why wait? And isn't that what we're supposed to be about? And so is membership important? Maybe, maybe not. What's more important is movement. The point of the church is movement, not necessarily membership. And uh, I'll show you one last Mac video just because it's fun. Uh, So here you go. And I'm a PC. And we're Microsoft Office. Uh, hello, guys. Why are you standing over there? PC, you know I run Microsoft Office. Have for years. <laughs> okay, okay, joke's over. Funny stuff. Excel, back to work. I don't see a ring on this finger. Come on, PowerPoint. You're not the boss of me. All right, I'll make it fun. We'll do a quarterly report. Awkward. The, um, there are 4,000 churches a year in America shutting their doors. 4,000 churches a year in America shutting their doors. And there's only one state out of 50 where the, the growth of Christianity is, is outdistancing population growth. That's Hawaii. Okay. Um, we need to not be worrying about um, membership and committee and institutional things, we just need to let it rip. And it's okay if it's a little ragtag on the edges. We just need to draw a target on what we're supposed to be about and start making a difference. Um, It's not membership. It's a movement. It's important. All right, last one here. Why is it hard for people to commit to church? So what would make it easier for people to get involved? Let's just put that spin on it. Um, Why is it hard to connect? It's just like oil and water. And what would make it easier to kind of get connected that way? And the first thing is simply this. um, Question your motives. I think it's hard sometimes because we go into church thinking it's about me. And it's about meeting my needs. And this church was something created by God to to do Christ's work in the world, the body of Christ. 
And when we go into it and we expect the church to be all about me, what do I like, what do I want, what do I need, we're in some sense telling God, God, you have to serve me. Um, I'm not here to necessarily serve you. And I, and I think we just slide into that. Why? Because our whole culture is built around that. We're a consumer culture. Everywhere we go, it's like, do I like this? Do I not like this? How does this feel? Are my needs getting met? Because I've got options. You know? And we, we're just such a consumer culture that we slide into that. But the church ought to be about giving and not, a, not necessarily just about getting. And in some sense, as you give is how you get. God wants it that way. It's like you can't outgive God. And as we give, God's going to take care of you. And so check your motives. Paul said this. Um, he said in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. besides everything else, like because he's getting beat and he's getting whipped and he's getting persecuted. And he says, besides all this crazy stuff, here's what really stresses me out. I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Now, have you ever had like a son or a daughter or a grandkid that you were concerned about? Pressure is the right word, isn't it? It's like it presses on you. You can't stand up all the way. You can't, can't be tall. You can't hold your head up. You're worried and it's stressful and it presses on you. And Paul's saying that kind of pressure, I have that kind of concern for all of the churches for Oasis and Eastmont and First Baptist and Antioch, I'm concerned about all of them and it's, it's pressure to me. And what would it be like if we, all of us, had concern for all the churches? That our, our, our driving paradigm was, how, how, how can I help these churches? What do these churches need to thrive? Not just, um, is it going to be entertaining? Is it going to tickle me the right way? Now, it's, it's great to get your needs met, but that's only a part of it. It's not sufficient. It's not the whole thing. And so we have to check our motives and say, do we care about the bride of Christ? Second thing, commit to putting down roots. Uh, here's another quote from C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters. So it's like a, a demon talking to another demon, and they're like against God. So that's the paradigm of this quote. And he says this, the demon does, Surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster or connoisseur of churches. For the search for a suitable church makes the man a critic. And what I've realized is we don't put down roots. And there's, I think, a couple different stages of this. Um, We float around so much that we'd be almost like a waterborne plant. Does that make sense? You know, we can just float. And how tall does a waterborne plant grow? I mean, not very, because, you know, the water can't support that. And so if we just float around, we're just like taking the cream of the crop of all the different churches, and we become a critic of everything else other than the few things we're going to that church for, and we just make the circle, and we run, you know, we run here, we run there, and we kind of do that. It's really hard for singles and college kids um, because they have a lot of time and a lot of freedom. Instead of getting involved in volunteer ministries and really putting down roots and beginning to serve, a lot of times they just bounce from one thing to the next to the next to the next. There's another thing, and that's called a, what I would call a potted plant or a potted tree. 
It's saying, you know, I've got roots, I'm kind of committed, but I have it in the back of my mind that sooner or later I'm going to leave. You know, I mean, it's a church, come on, let's be real. I'm not going to stay here for forever. I'll find something I don't like, and then I'll, like, take a break from church, and then I'll go back for a while. But I'm always going to stay in my own pot, because I know that I'm going to slowly bounce around, you know. And what happens with a potted tree or a potted plant? Eventually, the roots kind of turn back around and grow and, and it just gets all root bound. Does that make sense? You ever seen that? You pull out one of those trees and it's just like the roots have kind of just grown in on themselves. And there's only so big that, that a tree or a plant like that can grow. But if you take something with good soil and you just plop it down and you just say, you know what, I'm putting this thing here. I'm going to let it develop roots. I'm going to nurture it. That commitment to a local body over time can grow you to a huge, I mean, just a tree. You go down and look at some of those ponderosa pines and think, wow, it's amazing. It could never happen in a pot. Okay? And so we have to put down, we have to commit to putting down roots. And a lot of people, I think, have a difficult situation of saying, I've got a community, but there's like, you know, I've got a friend here and a friend here and a friend here and a friend here and a friend here, and my roots are all intertwined. And it's, it's hard. How do I plant myself in one church? Because I've got all these, like, you know, roots going everywhere. The ideal situation is you take the whole group and you transplant it into one church. I mean, that's the ideal situation, you know, but that's a tough thing in today's day and age. So ideally, you get the whole group to do it, but, but no matter what, commit to putting down roots. Third thing here, act before you think. You know, I think sometimes it's like, uh, I've never done it. <laughs> Kim's going to think I have, but I haven't. Uh, but you know that double dutch jump rope? thing where like there's these two ropes going crazy and it's like a blur and the and you see those girls and they stand on the edge and it's like they're trying to figure out when to jump in because I mean how do you jump into that all those ropes flying around you know and I think sometimes we act like that about church man there's like the small groups and, and volunteer ministries and everything's going on and everybody else seems connected. I feel like I'm the only one not connected. And it's just a whirr. And, and you sit back and you, and you kind of try and find that perfect moment to, to like actually get in there and do it. And, it. and you just need to dive in. You know, standing on the edge of the pool, you know, you can sit there and think about it all day, but you just need to dive in and get it over with. And once you do, you're like, hey, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> And so I think with church, we think it's hard to get involved. We think it's hard to commit. But I think we just need to dive in and realize, wow, it's really not that bad. Um, those people really aren't uh, weird or they don't have cooties. Um, and if I communicate well, they're really not going to burn me out, you know, hopefully. <laughs> There's like a dozen people saying, yeah, right. Um, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. It's not this crazy, like, hard, double-dutch, whatever, jump rope thing you got to dive into. It's what we were created for. It's community. It's what we want anyways. We just need to dive in and not get psyched out. Uh, number four here, prioritize your calling prioritize your calling. You know, calling should beat out comfort. I think sometimes comfort, just because we're Americans, um, is what drives us. Is this comfortable? Do I feel comfortable? Um, and comfort is the dominating piece in the equation. 
But I think, I honestly believe that God has whispered into everyone's ear in this room and given them a calling. That little vague, nagging thing that's been with you for two years, five years, ten years, twenty years, thirty years. Someday I'm supposed to write a book. Well, you know what? I always felt called to do something with the homeless. You know, or, or man, somehow, some way, overseas was a big deal, but it just never seems to fit. It never seems to fit. It never seems to fit. But everybody's got some kind of a little buzz in their ear, and, and I think it's from God, and it's like, man, it might take a long time for you to finally do that. But one of the things we need to do is prioritize that. You prioritize your calling. Other things seem to fit into place. Uh, Linda Janney, who stood up earlier and introduced, introduced G63, I called her when we were going to start this church, Tamara and I did, because um, I knew her when she was in junior high, kind of on, down in California, and she was at Moody, and she was graduating, and Tamara, like, Tamara and I were just like, if there's any one person we could get to move here and help us with this church, it's Linda. And so we called her, and we're like, because we knew she was going to have all these offers, you know, and she did. She turned down a killer grad school program for social work. And she had tons of other options she could do. And eventually she came here for one reason, and that's to live as a missionary in America. And so she works at Starbucks. And that's just where she meets the people that she gets to, to, to build relationships with and eventually invite to church or love on. And when you prioritize your calling, and make some key decisions in your life based on that. Um, and let other things fall into place. It's amazing how easy the church thing kind of comes together. You know, I mean, imagine moving to a town for a church. You know, I mean, that's the church you're married to. I mean, it's not like Linda's going to come here in a month later and go, oh, well, I think I'll go try out New Hope. You know, this is why she moved here. She doesn't care if it's messy or dirty, if there's holes that need to be patched. She's just going to dive in and help patch them because this is what she committed to. Because church wasn't about serving needs. What was predominant was her calling. Does that make sense? And I think we all need to encourage each other. We, we hear our friends articulate little things that are like kind of betray their calling. And we need to start throwing some elbows and saying, you know what, how can I help you with that? Or you know what, you need to put that first, you know, and let the pieces fall in. I'll help you with that too. But when you realize you're an arm, I mean, like take a quick like, you know, look up here moment again. You know, it's like, so if you're sleeping, wake up. If you got coffee, coffee sip it because you need to hear this. Um, if someone's sleeping next to you, we'll all wait while you scare them because it'll be pretty funny. Because uh, hear me here now, okay? This has to do with the local church. If you're an arm... And all of a sudden you wake up and you know what? God's got a calling for me. I'm supposed to grab things, you know? I'm supposed to like go grab things. I'm an arm, you know? And, and you realize that, you know? Or I'm an eye. I'm supposed to see things, you know? Look at all these things I'm seeing, you know? Pretty soon you're going to realize when you understand your calling that apart from the local church body, you can't accomplish that calling. An arm needs a body to kind of take it places. Otherwise, it'll just be laying on the ground like, oh, I can't reach it, you know. Uh, and an eye needs a body to tell it to. Wow, I got great information. I got to have somebody to talk to, you know. I'm in that boat. And I got some other friends in this church in that boat, you know. Uh, we need people to listen to the things we're seeing, you know. Um, <laughs> it's not very funny. Uh, 
as we recognize and embrace our calling, we're also going to recognize what the church is supposed to be to us. That it fits our calling. It helps drive our calling. It's going to move our calling. It's not just for comfort. And I believe that everybody should, should have a ministry in the church and a mission in the world. Um, a ministry in the church, it's what you do to help this body. And then a mission in the world, like the function that you serve going out beyond the scope of just this body. So we need to prioritize our calling. And real quickly, here's the last thing that I kind of added after I did the outline. Uh, and it's kind of changing the question. Why is it hard to get involved or commit to church? And here's the real answer, so you can throw away the rest of the outline, everything I've said today. I'm a pastor, so half of what I say you can throw away. Um, or not believe. Um, here's what the church can do. Uh, and I think it addresses the real problem. Um, the church needs to say we're sorry. Okay? Um, there's some really ridiculous things that have gone on. And there's some people that have been wounded by the church that would not have been wounded by Jesus. And it has happened. Maybe to you. It's happening all around. It's a part of of reality in, in the landscape. And it's not good. And the church somehow has to just stand up and say, you know what? Um, We're sorry. I I thought it would be cool to get a t-shirt that just says, I'm sorry. You know, walk around town. What are you sorry for? I'm sorry for some of the damage that the church has done. Because it makes it hard for people who need Christ to come to Christ. And that grieves me. And there's never a time in Scripture when repentance is wrong. You can't find me a single verse where God's going to say, why are you saying sorry? <laughs> Don't do that. You know, repentance is always okay. And humility is always good. And I've been a part of things before where groups and even elders will say, well, we didn't do anything wrong. It's like, no, nothing is ever 100% zero. You got a part in it somehow. Just admit it. Daniel was taken into captivity when he was a wee lad, just a little boy. And you read his prayer in the book of Daniel, and he says, we, Israel, have sinned. You know, because of our sin, because of our sin, we're here in captivity now. Well, he was just a boy. He didn't screw up big time. He wasn't the one that was doing it, why God like kind of took him and pulled them out. But he identified with the corporate side of it and said, you know what? I am a Christian. I belong to the church you know, kind of a thing, and we have sinned, and you know what, we just got to say, I'm sorry. And so I don't know how we figure out how to do that. Maybe it's the t-shirt idea, maybe it's just an attitude. Um, But what's needed are a few churches and Christians um, to admit that we're the reason some people have gotten burned. We're, we, are why it's hard to commit to us. And whose fault is that? It's our fault. And I think as we fess up and say, you know what? We're going to try and be different. We're going to work hard to be a little bit more about grace uh, and accept you where you at. And, and, and it's the parable, the parable of the king that forgives the man who owes him a lot of money. And then the guy goes out and grabs the guy that owes him like five bucks. And he's like choking him. 
And the king calls him back in and says, look, I accepted you where you were. You had nothing to offer, and I accepted you. So don't you get the idea here? The idea would be that you would have gone out, and here's this guy that's got nothing to offer you, and you would have accepted him. And so we as the church need to realize that what Jesus has done for us is a model for how we're supposed to handle people. And we take them where they're at and say, I love you. I love you. And there's no strings. You don't have to come to my church. Um, We don't need to get bigger because of you. It's not a bait and switch. You're not a product. You're not a means to an end. It's, It's not all somehow about me when I'm loving you, which cuts under love, doesn't it? But actually loving them where they're at the way Christ loved us and seeing that unlock people so that they get excited about the church and community where there's grace and encouragement. Let's pray and the uh, band's going to come up and we're going to take our offering. And if you've got those connecting cards, we'd love it if you'd put it in there um, and just let us know what's going on. And if you want to get involved, just check some of those boxes and we'll chase you down and help you get involved. But let's pray now. Father God, we do um, recognize that we're the ones in the equation that are messy, not you. We're the ones that get it wrong. We're the ones that forget. Uh, We're the ones that need help. And so as we try to get this thing right, as we try to go out and be a light to people and to show them love, because Jesus said that they're going to know we're legit by our love, So as we go out and try and and do that, Father, help us. Help us get it right. And we pray this in Christ's name.